Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Nick, great to have you along on the podcast. It is a very old Brisbane day here today where I am. After a big storm last night, how's it been for you? Yeah, not too bad. I was pretty glad it was raining in the afternoon as I was just coming back from the beach. So <laughs> pretty, pretty good timing there. Any any ultramarathons this weekend? Yeah, actually, this weekend, well, not last weekend, but this weekend I'm going to run Costa Kosciuszko. Right. 240 kilometres from Eden to the top of Mount Kosciuszko. Wow. And have you run a race that long before? Yeah, so I've done this one a couple of years ago. Okay. Um, and it took, a, I think, about 20, 27 hours. I'm hoping to improve on my time. I think I'm, I think I'm, getting, I think I'm getting faster, but we'll find out this weekend. <laughs> and how many people will be in that race? 57 on the start line. Usually it's got a pretty, it's, it's sort of selected, so it's pretty, pretty high rate of finishers. Okay, right. Okay, cool. And do you have sponsorship or anything for that, or you just do it all off your own bat? Yeah, I've got. I've actually got four sponsors. I've got. So I've got Runvault, who's a Australian sort of retail operation. Raidlight, a French a French manufacturer um, of, of running equipment and uh, and shoes. Um, Spring Energy do my nutrition, so it's these sort of uh, very wholesome gels. And then last, probably one of my favourite, more recent ones is Merino Country. You do all the um, Really, really comfortable merino gear. And okay. after my last, after my last race, there was a feature of me in Beyond the Bale, the magazine of the Australian wool industry. Probably the pe- pinnacle of my professional achievement. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So it's quite a big production then. Yeah, it sort of take, takes off. I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll run in everything from. I mean, fifty is probably a small race for me, fifty people. But the one I did early, I did a race earlier this year in Mont Blanc in France. And I think there are about 1,300 people on the start line all around the world. Okay. Well, we could probably do a whole podcast talking about that. But that's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's not what that's... busy between meetings. <laughs> Excellent. That's not... But let's, uh, let's get on to your professional life. So tell us a little bit about what you're up to professionally at the moment. Yes, yeah, so my role is managing director of SRO Technology. So we work in uh, predominantly in en- energy and resources and engineering. We're a, I describe us as a measurements company, but we'll probably get get more into it. We've, we've sort of recently diversified and sort of bran- branched out uh, both organically and through acquisition. Okay, and uh, you've been there for just under three years. Is that right? Yeah, just under three years. I originally came on as a consultant. I was. I'd, I'd been I'd been running a maintenance company work in the quarry sector. I'd, I'd sold out of that, and I was sort of looking for the next opportunity, so consulting and looking yeah looking for something to buy. And then the uh, one of the SRO board directors I'd met through a contact had uh, t- tapped me on the shoulder. He said, "Nick, have you got any availability for your consulting work at the moment?" I said, "Well, yeah, I do." He said, "Can you do three days a week on a retainer?" Yes, I can. I won't get, I won't, won't bore you with the details, but it, yes, it landed up having far too much fun, really, really getting on well with the team. There's the people in the organization that drew, really drew me. And then back in November, I think we were in the pub and I was telling the directors how much fun I was having and they were telling me how much they liked having me. Uh-huh. And they, yeah, they said, we well, want to do something here. And over the next couple of months, we, we figured out the details and I came on 
initially as chief operating officer, and then tragically, not long after I, I came on full time, the my predecessor, Andy, the, the, the chief executive officer, got seriously ill, subsequently died. Um, so that was it was a it was a real real tragic Andy um, Andy's passing, but very fortuitous for the company having a having a, a managing director in the wings ready to step in. Mm-hmm. And give us a sense of the uh, the size of the business. Yep. So SRO so currently around about ten million revenue with with about forty five people. In September we closed the acquisition of NYS up at Emerald. So that basically doubled the doubled the size of the business. So we're just under ninety heads, mm-hmm. and I think we're about twenty run rate of about twenty one twenty two million dollars. Okay, and what would be sort of a fairly typical example of uh, a client engagement? Yeah, so uh, we're 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 very we're very close to our customers. As if I talk about sort of the core measurement part of the business, usually we we get a call up in the middle of the the the, the customer life cycle. Will be like the customer will call. In the middle of the night on a Sunday, where a piece of equipment has gone down on their train loadout and they can't ship coal, it's costing them a hundred thousand dollars an hour, and they'll ask us to come out. So we'll we'll do we do a bit of that breakdown work. It's not my favourite. It's mm-hmm. poor for the customers, poor for our guys. So once we've done that, we'll we'll then engage a little bit further. So with you know main main equipment working with are the the wares that allow you to sort of measure the measure the product as it's moving across the conveyor belt. So we'll we'll work with them. We'll get them back up and running, but at the same time make recommendations. Often that leads to an ongoing engagement with our customers, whereby every month, every three months, six months, we'll turn up and do a, a full sort of service and calibration of their of their on-site equipment. That that that, that usually brings down the amount of breakdown support. But as part of that, we'll make recommend it. We'll we'll sell the parts that require that, that they need to, to keep operational, and then also sell them new systems. So we'll sell whole scale when the time comes for them to change them out. And you've also got a, an operation over in. Yep. So our, well, we've got we've got a few a few offices. So the head office is in Brisbane. We've got an office in Sydney, Mackay, Newcastle. We've got a small office in WA. And then I've got sort of one technician based in South Australia and one based in Rockhampton. And then with the acquisition of NYS, we've got a, a sort of 45-person team based out of Emerald. Right. Okay, great. Well, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about SRO later in the conversation. But let's go yeah. back now to where it all began. So tell us a little bit about, you know, where you were born and mum and dad and growing up. And let's have a little, a little traverse through your, your life. Yeah, great. Well, the if you probably picked from my accent, not not a, not a, not born in Australia. Originally from northeast Scotland, so I'm I'm Aberdonian. Although my parents my parents sort of they, they met abroad as expats. My my mum's Scottish parents, but grew up in in Africa in East Africa, Tanganyika and Kenya. And dad's uh, dad's an Englishman. Yeah, childhood. I got three brothers. Grew up in the countryside, causing all manner of mischief with with the brothers. Managed to survive all in all intact. Um, both my parents have had very entrepreneurial careers. I can't, I've, I've lost track of the the number of businesses that they started and ran between them. But you know, I'll give you an example. My mum couldn't find the right uh, nursery school for daycare in northeast Scotland uh, back in the 80s. So she went and studied Montessori and started started a nursery, grew it to something like 100 kids, and then sold it to the local school. Wow! So that's the 
that's the kind of upbringing I've, I've my you know my older brother who I've been in business with before. My older brother runs a an engineering company. He's still in Aberdeen. He's in engineering and robotics. My younger brother, kind of the black sheep of the family, is the only one who's not been a CEO. Right. Um, but he works in investment banking, so we don't feel too sorry for him. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. And so, what did you think you wanted to be when you were at school? What What were your grand aspirations? Oh man, most boring story ever. I, I always wanted to be an engineer. I had what uh, what what others would call the knack. Um, they given a given a remote controlled car for a gift as a kid. I'd drive it for about five minutes, and then I'd have the screwdrivers out pulling it apart, working out how it worked. So it was always going to be something something vaguely technical. Mm-hmm. And so uh, talk us through sort of the early part of your career. Yeah, so I'd, I'd been to army college at, you know, at age 16 with a view to sort of going into the army as a, as a technical officer. They put me through my, my sixth form, so kind of years 11 and 12 of school, as well as, so as, well as doing the training. I did the, you know, the military training, I did the, the A-levels as it was in the UK. I was supposed to go through this very military route and go to a, to a, to a unit based, out of, based within a university, but you're allowed to get out if you applied for Oxford or Cambridge. And I wasn't going to, but my mum, I had a space on the forum, so mum made me put it down Oxford. And I'm pretty thankful for that because I put down Oxford University Engineering Science um, and got offered, I fully didn't expect it, but got offered a place. So I went, I did four years studying engineering science at uni. During that time, I was doing military training in the Christmas and the Easter breaks. And then I had three months off in the Northern Hemisphere summer. And through an uncle living in the Northern Territory, I got got jobs working as a jackaroo in on Northern Territory cattle stations. Um, so when I graduated, it was 2008, and that was the end of the teeth of the financial crisis. The army had medically discharged me for shin splints, and I was sort of 18, 19 years old, oh, sorry, uh, 20, 21, 22 years old, not really sure what to do in life. So I came back to Australia for a year, took my girlfriend at the time on the cattle stations. She didn't really like that as we were living in a, in a swag underneath the saddles. <laughs> uh, to travel around, but I ended up getting, it was in Townsville, got laid off from packing fertilizer. So I applied for a job with GHD Engineering. They said, Have you heard of Gladstone? I said, No. They said, You'll love it. <laughs> and, and I did. I really had a good time. It was a great, great start to my career doing consulting engineering. Excellent. And, and so just sort of stepping back a little bit. So were your shin splints due to your, your crazy running schedule back then, or is that a newer thing? So the crazy running schedule is the newer thing. I was, I was always a runner through school, sort of mid, you know, mid, mid, middle, middle of the pack cross country runner. But between the running and the between the other yeah, running and the military training, I just got the shin splints and went through, went, went, went through sort of with the orthopedic surgeon. They said we might be able to fix it in a couple of years with some surgeries, and I just uh, didn't didn't want it. I didn't I didn't want the that, that career direction enough to sort of go through go through that surgery and long process. So. Fair enough. And and when you were at university, you said you were coming over here and doing this work as a jackaroo. So did you do that every year or how many times did you do that? Yeah, so I did it yeah, four, four times, including sort of when I came out right. after graduating. And I was working out of Catherine for like one bungee, Doris Vale. I worked over Victoria River. I got stuck at the roadhouse there and they asked me if I could ride a horse. Right. Uh, I said, yeah, I can ride a horse. I got a job. Uh, I got a job looking after the uh, the, uh, the the station or his wife's sort of thoroughbreds and quarter horses. I had to ride these mad mad horses and, and, and get them nice and gentle for her. 
and touch wood to this day, I've never been thrown. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, so you're here, you're in Gladstone, you're working for GHD. So what kind of things were you doing? So I was doing a lot of design engineering. So I was a lot of the old school calculation pad. I'd get a, get a design a design to do or sketch it up, calculate using Australian hand standards and, and by hand, write that, write that all out. And then I'd be passing bits of paper to a, to a drafter to, to draft up the designs. But doing that is going out and doing structural inspections. You know, one of my favorites was going up to Rocky and doing the salt plant there. And there's bits, you know, you're looking for the bits, the sheds connected to the floor and can't quite, can't quite find that. So I note, Nick, from your LinkedIn profile that, that you went back to Aberdeen then. So was the intention only to have stayed in Australia for a short period or, or what happened there? I was uh, following, following a girl, Richard. My, uh, my girlfriend wanted to go to Edinburgh Uni to study, study human osteoarchaeology. It was like okay. digging up, digging wow. up dead people. And, and so we, we, we came back together. You know, I, I thought about staying in Australia, but like, I was, I was on a tourist, oh, no, sorry, um, backpacker visa that was running out. Right. So I kind of ended up back in Aberdeen, no job, not sure what I wanted to do with my career. The economy is still, you know, it's the end of wow, was it 2009. The economy is still, still, still in pieces. And I was around the table, around the, around the kitchen table with my, with my parents. And I moved back, back in the family home. And I'm sitting there complaining about not being able to find a job. And my dad's sitting there complaining about not being able to find good engineers. And it took my mum to sort of get us to join the dots. Right. Like, so my, my sort of first job back in the UK was, uh, was working with my dad. Uh, as a mechanical engineer in, in oil and gas, working for his startup, I was employee number, I think, 11 or 12, and sort of come, come, coming in at just, just the perfect, you know, half of everything is luck and just coming in at the perfect time as the oil, you know, the oil industry was really taking off. And, and so was Dad, Dad's company. And so it was just the right, the right time, the right place. And this was a Geoprober? Geoprober, yeah. Right. And which eventually took you to Brazil. Yeah, so I, I moved up through design engineering project. You know, my first project management was me and a designer. And I took that, that to, I think we made that project about seven million pounds with, with Statoil, which is now Equinor, so designing new, 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 new and innovative drilling systems for them. Um, but yeah, I ended up in, my brother and I ended up uh, buying my dad out of the company and then I ran it for a year out of Aberdeen. And we got this opportunity with BG Group in, in Brazil um, and my brother just had a kid, so it had to be me that went to run it. And so I set up a yeah, set up a subsidiary company over in over in Rio back in what 20, 2014. Okay, right. And so what then? Given it was your father's business, you didn't want to work with him for your entire career, or because then you moved into another organisation. Yeah. So the well, the so Jupiter was it wasn't so much working with Dad because he retired. So we we bought him out, and he retired in twenty thirteen. So my brother and I had been running the company. But the, the sort of the think fast moment was I was out in Brazil, end of 2014, and the oil price had been up 100, $100 to $130 a barrel, and it collapsed pretty quickly down to sort of that 15, 20 mark. Mm -hmm. And the whole oil, oil industry was in turmoil, customers canceling contracts. And so, yeah, it was, we, we had to sort of, uh, we had to knock the, knock the Brazil adventure on the head. Financially, it worked out well for us. I'd, I'd, you know, we'd, we'd made some money and got it back to the UK. Mm -hmm. But the, but the, yeah, technically it was frustrating because we'd done all this design work and it was just on hold. So I've sat there in Rio now, now married, just not the, not the girlfriend I've been in Australia with, <laughs> with my wife. 
or I call her my current wife, Emma. Right. <laughs> um, she, uh, we, we were trying to figure out what to do. The oil industry is in pieces. I sort of reached out to get to look at other other jobs or other opportunities, and there was nothing going. So I thought I'll I'll go to I'll go do an MBA. Um, I'd been guessing how to run a business and sort of picking up for intuition and developing things from first principles as engineers kind of often do. But I'd, I'd, I just thought I want to just go and study and sort of consolidate that part of my career. Mm-hmm. And it's quite different. I mean, it's a proper privilege. I sound like a proper privilege asshole here, but I was half in Brazil and going, I could go anywhere in the world with what, with what I've done. I could go study anywhere. And where, like, where in the world do I want to live? And so narrowed down, so narrowed down MBA courses on the basis of I want to go to a top-ranked school. I want to do it in 12 months, starting in January, and a place that's really good to live for cheap. So I was between Stellenbosch in South Africa and UQ in Brisbane. And I didn't want to go to South Africa because of the security stuff. I'd had enough of that in Brazil. So now, yeah, went to, went to UQ for, for, for a year and got my MBA. Right. Okay. And then after that, I, I again, from your LinkedIn profile, looks like, uh, you know, you had a few entrepreneurial sort of opportunities, rich back capital, and then, you know, these stints as an MD with a couple of different businesses. So how did that all come together? Well, before, before that, so straight off the back of the MBA, I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I went to, to work for Carney as a strategy consultant in their London office. Right. Now, I'd already applied for my permanent residency as planning to stay in Australia. But the, you know, I applied for a bunch of jobs and the best opportunity I had was, was to go that strat consulting route. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So did that, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, learned probably just as much doing that as I did on the MBA. But I, yeah, the call of sort of the smaller business, the entrepreneurial route, took my fancy. And I'd read about this search fund idea in the Harvard Business Review, which, they, you know, put a long story short, is a leverage buyout for a small business, mm-hmm. whereby as, as, a, as, an, as the entrepreneur, you, you go out, you find find a business to buy it. And then, and so I did, so I did that. I bought Queensland, sorry, Quarry, Quarry Plant Solutions and Queensland Sandblasting and Painting. And so mm-hmm. I, I'd gotten in, run those, and then got out relatively quickly. The, 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 the guy I bought the TPS from wanted to buy the, buy the shares back. So I got out of that and that's where I landed up doing a bit of consulting work and finding myself getting into SRO. Right. Okay. So lots of, you know, adventures around the world. And, uh, and now living in little old Brisbane and having these running adventures. So, right. so when you're, you know, you're sitting in the business now, you said that you've just made an acquisition, which has basically doubled the size of the organization. And so when you're looking at the business and looking out to the future, so what are the plans? Yes, yeah, so we're, yeah, I mean, the main, I guess the probably, I, I think very much in terms of, of horizons. So working from, from near to, to far. So the, the focus in the business at the moment is on, is on integrating and uh, wise into the team organically. I mean, SRO, I think in the last 12 months or so has grown from about 14 techs to 24. And so just trying to get the, just take, taking a breath on that growth and, and making sure that we're the, we're fit for the next phase is, is, is the real focus of the business. So the systems and processes, integrating teams, getting, getting you know, the finance function all working. And that, that whilst we're still growing, like that, the focus is kind of internal and that, that'll take us through to the, probably the end of the financial year. And then, yeah, then we're, we're looking to turn on the growth levers. We've got a lot of opportunities, expanding or rolling out uh, the full, because SRO's got measurement and instrumentation. NYS has got electrical refrigeration and security, security and communications. Um, 
there's a there's a real clear opportunity to roll out that full suite of services around our around our our, our, our geography. Mm-hmm. Um, so that will that's a and strategy in a small business. I always say if it if it seems clever, it's probably too complicated. Right. So, so it's a simple, simple geographic rollout and just trying to get the, those, those services provided on that national footprint. Longer, longer term, sort of out, out towards, I say longer term, but you know, that, that FY25, 26, 27, the, the ambition of SRO's shareholder group is to have the business at that sort of 100 million revenue mark and as well as increasing the, the profitability as we, as we scale. Now that might sound pretty pretty outlandish from the size of business that we are, but I mean, that's you know, effectively double and double again, mm-hmm. and which is what we've done in the last couple of years. So it's not, it's not impossible. So we're going to be pushing hard on those organic growth levers, but also we're out there in the market looking for further M&A opportunities. And you mentioned you know, growth through geographic expansion. Are you also looking at new markets or new services to, to broaden out the business? Yeah, so the, I mean, my, my, my view on the world and view on sort of in, in integration is less from the old school vertical integration where you're looking up the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, we buy in sort of fabricated steel and electronics boxes and put them together. I'm not, I'm not about to sort of go into a fabricator and then the steel importer, that, that, that sort of integration. What, what I'm looking for is to be integrating up the digital value chain. So, you know, the, the da- data and is, is really what our customers care about. And if I think mm-hmm. you spend long enough with any of our customers, they don't want to own scales. They don't really care about buying calibration and service and, and uh, servicing. What they really want is to know, you know, this was an example in one, one product stream, but what they really want to know is how much is moving along the conveyor. And so when we start to think in terms of data, as, as a business, we're at the real pointy end of that digital value chain. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're helping them measure stuff. If you don't have those scales right, the instrumentation right, you can't get any of it. Any, you can't get any of it, any of it right. So any automation project, any big data kind of thing, it's just, it's just going to fall flat. So what I do is then follow back from the pointy end of the digital value chain. And part of NWISE is looking at both communicating and powering the, that, that digital value. But then we can start to move back through and say, well, what does automation look like? What do what do these you know what do these projects look like? So rather than just being the enabling technology for say an automation on a mine site, is that we can be driving that and be the integrator of that of that in, in, of that that automation, and then we can move further down and start to think about more sophisticated sort of robotic and AI applications. Um, but it's very much stepwise, moving from the almost the literal coalface right down to to to, to some of these sort of cutting cutting if not bleeding edge technologies. Fantastic. And so when you're looking at these kind of innovations, I mean, are you looking at what else is happening in the world and taking ideas from that? Or how, how are you generating the, you know, the conceptualization that you you'd now want to follow through with? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's what we've, it's certainly what we've seen, you know, what, what I saw in Europe working as a Strat consultant, you know, the, the CEO agenda at that point was all about the digital transformation, which mm-hmm. sometimes becomes a buzzword. But really when you strip it all back, it's, it's, the, it's the automation, it's the AI. Those are the real functions that are moving industry forward. And so I saw a lot of that. I saw, I worked with, you know, I, had met, I had colleagues in sort of the advanced manufacturing um, center, of, center of excellence and seeing what factories are doing 
moving towards that sort of dark factory concept. So those are sort of that's where a lot of the ideas are coming from. Mm -hmm. But the I guess you know I guess we're not we're not really doing anything vastly new here. You know the mining companies have the same consultants as what I used to be, and they're already you know BHP's got their you know the remote operations here in Brisbane. They've got their the digital center of excellence, and that kind of thing is happening across the economy. I think the bit that's lagging often is these companies go in and they build the center of excellence. And then they go out to the market to find these technologies, and they find what they often find are people with apps or with ideas and stuff very much at the early stages. Where I see SRO differentiating is we have we we're already doing things that they require. We're already on the vendor list. We're already really intimate with the guys on site. And so when it comes to 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 pushing those digital technologies, we're already there, and we can be working alongside our customers to actually bring meaningful change and, and meaningful sort of benefits to their to their operations, both in terms of cost and also safety, but do it in a practical way rather than sort of sitting back with mm. a with a concept for if we do this with the data lake and have this bot doing this and that, it all becomes a little bit abstract. Like we we, we work in we work on site with actual bits of equipment and can can really really drive that change from the front line ah, and what about what about for your own career nick you do you think you're going to be heading off somewhere else in the world for you know the next part of your career or is brisbane home now richard i'm never moving house again i'm it's probably <laughs> my least my least favorite thing to do in the world so no i, I see brisbane very much as as home you know i do i don't mind don't mind a little bit of the work travel i enjoy being close to, you know, close to my teams and close to my customers. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I'm de de definitely going to be, be, out of, be, be working out of Brisbane. I mean, career-wise, I, I think in terms of, of tours of duty and everyone, everyone has that and there's usually a start and an end. And the skill in your career is knowing when your tour of duty, when, when your tour of duty is up and you've added the value that you can for that role in that company. But with SR, if, and if SRO were to be plateauing, if we're sort of, you know, setting it up for long term, you know, just keep, keep things as they are. I probably would not be the best person to be running that business necessarily. But that's not the case. You know, we've got huge ambitions for what we're going to be achieving in the next few years. Um, and as the business grows, as the, as the role of, of managing director changes, as it has from a five mil to a you know, more than 20 mil revenue business, it's, it's definitely got me excited. And then, so as, you know the the other side of it is well the sort of business as usual, but there might be a point at which we grow beyond where where my skills as a managing director lie, and I'm far more involved in in, in the in, in managing managing politics and personalities and reporting to a bigger board or potentially looking at you know running a listed company where that might not be a great fit for my skills, and so right. at that point you know I'll I'll have a there'll be a conversation with with the board and a smooth transition and, and I'll, I'll figure out what's, what's next for my life. Oh, fair enough. And you've already, you've mentioned your ultra marathoning. So what, what are some of the other things that you like to do to keep the, the fuel tank full? Yeah, between, you know, between sort of running, running a business and being an elite, elite runner, not, 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 a, not, a, not a huge amount. Right. Um, family wise, it's, it's uh, they're married, married with one dog. So, right. um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I do. I do. I do enjoy a bit of bit of, sort of personal travel and sort of seeing the you know, more recently seeing the best parts of what Australia has to offer. But mm -hmm. looking forward to getting a bit bit uh, a little bit further afield. And yeah, some you know, I like. I do like uh, you know, a few other hobbies like rock climbing and music and skiing. 
but uh, those sort of ebb and flow is is my is my work and running ebb and flow. Oh, that's right. I think I remember when we had lunch a while ago. You're a, you're also a guitarist. I am, but I, I I'm 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 probably a, a few a few pages in the in the beginner book behind behind yourself, Richard. Oh, look, I, I I got asked. I went and visited a friend of mine who's actually a cattle farmer up near Toowoomba. And uh, I was up there yesterday and they said, oh, you've got to bring up your guitar. And we, you know, and I was like, oh, I haven't picked up a guitar in probably, well, most of this year. So I think I'm pretty, pretty rusty as well. But uh, it's a, it's a lovely, it's a lovely hobby to, to, to be able to express yourself through music is, it's a great joy. It definitely appeals. Like I find when I pick up the guitar, I can focus, like I, I get a very relaxed focus. It's that sort of flow state right. where I can, you know, I can practice the same piece the same scales for like two hours on end and just finish you know completely empty my mind of everything else so yeah i do i do chase these hobbies where, where that, that fit in nicely around my work um, <laughs> to leave me leave me refreshed excellent all right well nick look i really have appreciated you taking the time today i wish you all the best with the business and certainly also with your your race on the weekend and have a fantastic afternoon i will thanks so much richard always good to catch up all right thanks nick bye thanks mate. bye We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Arate Podcast with Richard Treeks. For show notes and other resources, please visit aratepodcast.com. While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes so you can continue your own journey towards realizing your full potential as a senior executive. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.